Well, today's section begins one of the most interesting stories that we find in Scripture about Jesus and his disciples. While uh, we already know it's true, nothing can beat his death, burial, and resurrection. Can you say amen? But this is one of the most mystifying of all stories. You know, brothers and sisters, in this world, we are bombarded with images and loud proclamations, not just about Jesus, but about anyone who claims to be God or have some type of mysterious insight into the spiritual realm. And you know this when you hear people especially say that, well, I'm spiritual. I just want to be spiritual. What does that mean? The average person, especially those who live and breathe in the city, that we live and we work in environments full of people from various cultural and religious backgrounds. Some of you are most assuredly impacted by the flavor of the day. You know what I mean? As people try to maneuver and understand the differences and similarities in our ever-changing society concerning faith and everything else under the sun. In today's message, however, we find Jesus and a chosen few of his disciples on a mountain about to learn an important lesson about none other than in Jesus Christ. So clarity about Jesus is important in a world full of a multiplicity of ideas. Clarity of Jesus and concerning Jesus is very helpful in our quest to follow him. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And here we find the great opportunity. The great opportunity. Verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking, that is, Elijah and Moses, they were talking with Jesus. So Jesus took a few of his disciples up on a mountain uh, with him. And more specifically, our passage tells us that it was uh, Peter, James, and John. Now, this is important to note because we see that there were no other disciples that were selected for this particular ministry. Why wouldn't Jesus, uh, in his quest, in order to grow people to become uh, Christ-like, not invite all of his disciples up on the mountaintop? And the bottom line is that leadership sometimes requires selectivity. Amen? Uh, Sometimes you can't take everybody up on the mountaintop because everybody may not even be ready to be on that mountaintop with you. Amen? 
But nevertheless, it was important to Jesus that just a few select, a small number of people accompany him up on that mountain. Sometimes the idea of leadership, the idea of being selected for leadership can lead to prideful arrogance, as we will see in the next few messages in the next few weeks. So how do we balance leadership within the body of Christ uh, with the priesthood of all believers, right? Uh, the idea that Jesus, on the one hand, he only selected three and not all. If you know and understand what the, the priesthood of all believers is, you understand that the spirit that is in me, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that same spirit is in you as well. If you truly belong to Jesus Christ, so if you are living like hell, then it's very possible that the spirit of the living God cannot fall afresh on you because you don't know him in the first place. So all those who the Lord selects are those whom he called. Yet our sovereign Lord decided who would go up on the mountaintop. That did not diminish the fact that there are other disciples. Amen? Didn't diminish it, not one iota. But he selected just three to go with him. So next, the scripture tells us that Jesus didn't just take them up on a mountain, but took them up, what, on a high mountain. Uh, to look again. So Jesus didn't just take them up on a mountain, he took them up on a high mountain. So when we see these words, high mountain, in scripture, it typically connotes a special place of vision. Uh, going up a mountain allows you to see what you would not ordinarily see. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning in verse 2, Ezekiel was brought uh, to a high mountain to see the things about the future of the temple. and For that matter, it has to do with the future of Israel itself. And then in Revelation chapter 21, verse 10, the angel in Revelation brought the apostle John up a great and high mountain, it says there, to see the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from where? From God. In other words, the apostle John couldn't have seen that any other place unless he went up on the high mountain. And in fact, remember even, I think in Luke chapter 4, the fact that the devil even took Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple. He took him up to a high place so that he can get a vision of all the things that he could actually have. Right? Satan was going to give this stuff to Jesus. Can you imagine? And I tell you, we must know who Jesus is. So we must know who Jesus ain't. Amen? But the tricky thing is that we oftentimes, as we begin to ascend that mountain, uh, we oftentimes uh, get lost along the way. We look at all the sparkles and all the glitter alongside the road, and we think that our primary purpose for going up that mountain is to look at all the trappings that we see along the way. In fact, 
Once we get up to the top of that mountain, what is the first thing? If you've ever been on a mountain, one of the first things that you do when you get up on a mountain is do what? You do what? You look where? Down. That we're not necessarily concerned about that, oh, look, we're here. But one of the first things we do when we get up on a mountain, on a high mountain, we look down. But in this passage, Jesus uh, was in essence saying, the word of God is telling us that uh, he does not want you to look down, but he wants us to continuously to look up. So without any more deliberation, verse 2 tells us uh, that Jesus, what? He was transfigured before them. Jesus was transfigured before them. Uh, Transfigured is literally a word in the Greek language which simply says to be metamorphosed. And in other words, that Jesus, that he changed right before their eyes. In fact, the word metamorphosis, it means to change completely the nature or the appearance of something. And the example most of us are familiar with is the fact that uh, we see how uh, the, the, the larvae, how it spins its, its, uh, its silk into cocoon, right? We see that, right? And then after a period of time, uh, we know that that larvae is no longer like that ugly little bug, but that ugly little, ugly little slug in the cocoon, it turns into a what? A pretty little butterfly or a monarch or whatever it is. If you were very inquisitive like I was as a kid, uh, oftentimes we would go to a certain place in our neighborhood uh, and we would try to find the cocoons and one of the things we always wanted to do was we wanted to cut it open as kids. And so we would run around in our neighborhood trying to see where is this thing at in its stage. So we'd find a cocoon and then literally little boys, right? Uh, we would take that thing and we would cut it wide open to see what was in there. And then we would hope that if we put it back together that it would be okay and it would still develop over time. So uh, with Jesus, as we will see, uh, that he's different from a larvae that enters into and spins this, uh, the, the, this web of cocoon around itself. Amen? He's different because uh, once he changes into uh, a butterfly, that's it, right? But with Jesus, it's different. Why is it different? Because we know, if we've read the passage before, that Jesus, he transforms. Amen? And then when he's finished transforming, he does what? He goes back to where he was. Amen? So that's the difference between the metamorphosis of a butterfly and of Jesus. That Jesus, because he is God, he can enter in and enter back out at will. So the transformation of Jesus... What exactly was it? It says here that his clothes became intensely white in verse 3. We should know that it was not that only that Jesus' clothes were were shining like, like gold in the sun, but Matthew says in Matthew 17, 2, it says that his face shone like what? The sun in Matthew 17, 2. While Luke says in Luke 9, 29, it says that his face became different and his clothing white and gleaming. But my question to 
Mark here in the Gospel of Mark is, why would you leave off such important details that we think is important, right? If you see someone whose face is glowing, you want to know about it, amen? Because someone's face who's glowing, you know, there's something special about them. Now, I'm not talking about me. Some of you look at me and say, look at his face, it's glowing, but that's nothing but sweat, right? Uh, you see that, that light beaming off the water, we'll call it water, just coming down my head. Right, Jesus was different, and if his face was glowing, we want to know. But why did Mark leave that out of his rendering of the gospel? Well, it's almost like uh, that Mark had this idea that uh, he needed to focus on something else. So therefore, he minimizes uh, Jesus' total physical transformation by not even mentioning his face glowing. Then we already read in verse 3 that, uh, that Jesus was shining so much that his clothes looked like not even Clorox could turn them that white. So how could they miss that? How could they miss it? How could Mark miss it? The fact that his face was glowing. What will we miss today about Jesus? Because our mind is focused on the wrong things. You see, what Mark is telling us in this passage is that uh, there is this tendency uh, for us uh, that when we come to Jesus, that we look at the wrong thing and that we're focusing on the wrong thing. So, so what Mark was saying is that I'm not going to even mention his face because from the perspective of a disciple, you have to understand that sometimes you can miss things about Jesus. So if you've come to church today to be entertained and not engage, then guess what? You're not going to be satisfied. Uh -uh. If you've come today to analyze and not hear what thus says the Lord, guess what? You will miss God. About uh, uh, sometime last month, I heard an interview uh, from one of the coaches from March Madness. And uh, during that time that this particular coach was was asked, what happened to your team? In other words, his team was doing pretty well, and then they uh, came to a very formidable opponent, and all of a sudden, uh, they just looked like they had never played basketball a day in their life. So when the interviewer asked the coach what happened, the coach said this. He says that my team was like a bunch of 18-year-olds who got lost at the carnival. So in other words, with all the glitz and the glamour and all the things that was inherent within March Madness, they started looking at all this other stuff, but they could not focus on the main thing, so they lost miserably. And here in our passage, we will see this as well, the fact that the disciples were having trouble focusing on Jesus. could be very well that the disciples were focused more on the action and the place of worship than the person of worship. The disciples were probably focused more on the action and the place of worship 
uh, more so than the person of worship. It's like those who focus on going to church instead of anticipating meeting the divine builder of the church. I'm going to church so I can enter into and be deep in my relationship with the Lord. This is why I'm going versus I'm going to a building. Amen? Uh, so when we enter in as a church, in fact, uh, this whole building can, can simply uh, collapse. But the church will remain strong. Amen? The stroke, uh, the, the, uh, the church will not collapse. Amen? So it is possible to get lost in the mechanics of worship. So much so that we forget about the person of worship. It is possible to be so focused on what people wear to church that we can't focus on praising the Lord in spirit and in truth. So seeing Jesus transform right before them should have espoused the idea that Jesus is special. Uh, wouldn't that do something to you? If you were walking next to a person and all of a sudden they start glowing, wouldn't, you, wouldn't the first thing you say is, you know what? You know what? You're glowing all of a sudden. You got like nuclear something on you that you're glowing like that? You got radiation that you're glowing like that? Uh, that shouldn't that have been the question they should have asked? Uh, you're walking next to a person and they start glowing. Their face is glowing. Their clothes are glowing and there's no light anywhere. So the disciples, yes, they saw that Jesus was glowing. But then, more importantly, it says, for them, they saw Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. Verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And the idea is that, that Elijah and Moses, that they appeared to the disciples, uh, tells us a whole lot. What this simply means in our passage is that they were just minding their business and God opened their eyes so they could see. You hear what I'm saying? So they were living their lives going up on the mountain and God opened their eyes so they could see Elijah and Moses right before them. It's sort of like, if you remember here in Acts chapter 7 verse 55, this is a story about the uh, martyrdom of, uh, of Stephen. And in Acts 7.55, it says that, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So the question is, when is Jesus not standing at the right hand of God? The bottom line is Jesus is always standing at the right hand of God. Our problem is we can't see it. And because we can't see it, many of us don't believe it at all. And what God does occasionally is sometimes he opens our eyes and let us see what is going on within the spiritual realm. And here... For Peter, James, and John, uh, what God did when it says Elijah and Moses that, uh, that they appeared to them, that God opened their eyes so that they can see. There's a story even in the Old Testament, I think it's 2 Kings, in fact, in which uh, uh, Elijah, there was an army that had come after, uh, had come after them, 
And uh, so Elisha's, not Elijah, but Elisha's servant said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Elisha said, what are you talking about? What are you worried about? Don't you know, in essence, that uh, those that are with us are, are more than those are coming after us? He's like, what do you mean? Then the scripture says, then that servant, his eyes were opened. And then when his eyes were opened, he saw all, uh, all the, 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 the heavenly military surrounding them to protect them. You see, God, he can open our eyes when he wants to. Now, if you're walking around saying, yeah, I saw Jesus yesterday. He was sitting at my table. Well, okay. And then all of a sudden, I saw Jesus for breakfast, and I saw Jesus. I'm like, well, wait a minute. What do you got that I ain't got that you're seeing Jesus all the time? Are you sure you're seeing Jesus, or are you seeing something else? But also, I, I find this very fascinating that, do you realize that uh, within this passage that uh, Elijah and Moses did not introduce themselves to Peter, James, and John? Did you, did you notice that? That Elijah and Moses did not say, hey, y'all, I'm Elijah. Or they didn't say, hey, y'all, I'm Moses. Did you notice that? How did they know? Because they did know, and we'll see, or if you go ahead and read a, little, uh, a few verses ahead, they did know who they were. And I believe, simply believe this, that in the heavenly realm, somehow God gives us the gift of knowing people, simply who people are. And that even in heaven, that folks are not going to walk around with name badges on. You will know who it is. So if someone that you know uh, that went home to be with the Lord, and you're wondering, how will I know who they are? Will I really know who they are? I believe by the gifting that God will give us while we're in heaven, that you will know exactly who they are. So for Peter, James, and John, they knew who Elijah was. They knew who Moses was. And no one had to introduce them. So what were they talking about, right? What was uh, Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus about? And in our passage, Mark doesn't know. They don't know uh, what they were talking about. But Luke does. Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him. This is, the hymn is Jesus. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And then he explains this, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, we're speaking to the fact that they're about to crucify Jesus Christ. Jesus was having a conversation with Elijah and Moses. You hear that? Jesus was having a conversation with Elijah and Moses about his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. So they had always wondered what manner of time and what manner of person would actually come to fulfill all the things they had been saying all this time. And lo and behold, they understood now within the, uh, the heavenly realm, obviously, God had given them understanding and knowledge. Next, the great misconception. Mark chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And Peter... Can you say that with me, and Peter? Yeah, say it just like that, and Peter. 
And, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Man, that sounds like a good compliment coming. Amen? I would say always be careful when someone comes to you, hey, uh, best friend forever, what's going on? Except if I say, if I said that you know it's, it's really true, I, I don't want anything else, right? So Peter, he begins by saying, Rabbi, it is good. What a compliment. It is good that we are here. It's like, wow, Peter gets it. He knows that, uh, that it's good for him to be there, that God had allowed them to see what he sees and what they saw. But Peter said, it is good. This is good. But then he says, let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6 says, for he did not know what to say, <laughs> for they were terrified. Assessing situations according to human standards can be misguided and greatly misguided. In response to what he saw, Peter wanted to make three tents in dedication for Elijah, for Moses, and for Jesus. It's really amazing how slow of heart we can be at times, isn't it? That sometimes that, that God can give us such great revelation that we end up going off on the deep end, like they used to say. Do people still say that? After seeing all that he has seen and experienced all Jesus has done, uh, Peter was still grasping for straws, trying to figure out who Jesus was. Even after this transformation, uh, Jesus remained a mystery to these disciples. Can you imagine that? I would have at least said that, you know what? There's something special about you, Jesus. Give me more, give me more, give me more understanding. We would have thought that Peter would have finally gotten it after he made that great declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the great quandary that we find ourselves in. We believe, yet we have great doubts at the same time. So as much as Jesus has done for us, as much as we know that he is God, doubts plague us, and, and when the pressure is on, we don't know what to do, uh, so we place Jesus on the same plane with everyone else. Well, this speaks directly to our desire of wanting to equalize the religious playing field in the world. Well, I may not be talking to you but I'm talking to people who really want world peace at any cost. In the mind of Peter, he knew God existed and that Jesus was involved in the plan of God in a major way, especially as Messiah. But his understanding had not yet been opened in, in a way uh, to give him the confidence of, uh, of knowing the living Jesus before he was crucified and resurrected from the dead. So Peter, he swayed. This would not be the first time he swayed. He tried to deny Jesus the way of the cross. Remember uh, when he says, no, uh, that will never ever happen to you after Jesus taught him, taught him about the fact that he was going to be convicted, he was going to be tried, he was going to be condemned, and that they would kill him, they would bury him, and then he would raise, rise from the dead on the third day. Remember Peter said, uh-uh, that's not going to happen to you, Jesus, at all. 
And what did Jesus tell him? He says, uh-uh. He says, get behind me, Satan, because the things that you're saying, that they are uh, satanically influenced. So know that if Jesus said that to Peter, anyone that tried to deny the fact that Jesus had to go the way of the cross, you better understand that that is a satanic teaching. I'll say it again. Anyone that tries to deny that the, the fact that Jesus had to go the way of the cross, you better believe that that is a satanic influence teaching. And you better either defend the gospel of Jesus Christ or you better just get out of there. So in this passage, however, Jesus is viewed here in Mark 9 as one of many. And this is the same thinking behind the bumper sticker secular theology which promotes the idea of coexistence. Have you seen those bumper stickers? Coexists, it has... You know, the religious symbols from, from different things, including some of them even have satanic symbols within that, and it has the cross at the very end. Well, on the same hand, some truly want world peace, but that peace for them, it comes at the cost of rejecting the truth of Scripture. In order to promote this idea of tolerance, which says all ideas are worth considering and all ideas are just different paths or different way up the mountain to God, uh, they must reject Jesus. Because Jesus, he says what? If you say that Jesus is one of many, but Jesus on the other hand says what? I am what? In John 14 and 6, he says what? I am the way. He says I am the truth and I am the lie, he says, no one can get to the Father. No one can get to God except by me. So how can there be many ways up the mountain to God? So if you say that uh, every, every religious ideology is true, you instantly deny the ideology of Jesus Christ and the historicity, the, the fact that he actually lived and that he was there. You deny it and you pull it down and you say, no, 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 no. You can't have it both ways, brothers and sisters. Either this statement by Jesus is true, or it's not. Either Jesus told the truth, or Jesus, he lied. Which one is it? What are you calling Jesus today? Are you calling Jesus a truth teller? Or are you calling him a liar? Bottom line is that truth cannot be both true and false at the same time. Some promote this idea by, by trying to get out of it by simply saying, well, what I mean by that is what's true for you is not true for me. Well, wait a minute. I understand that if we're talking about uh, uh, pistachio ice cream. Well, I love pistachio ice cream. In fact, it's hard for me to even think of any ice cream I don't like, uh, but uh, for a long time, I, didn't, I, I never liked chocolate ice cream for a long time. I would never, ever, ever get chocolate ice cream. If there was nothing else left, then I would say, okay, give me chocolate. Right? On the other hand, my son, he loved chocolate. And I would look at him and say, man, why he, everything is chocolate, you know, chocolate cake and, and chocolate this. You know, I just, you know, I had an adversity to, so I didn't like chocolate. 
So it's okay. The idea of what's true for you is not true for me. It works with ice cream. The idea of what's true for you and what's true for me, it works whether or not if you like peanuts. It works whether or not if you like a, a 1971 Cadillac or if you like instead a, an older Thunderbird, right? Uh, that's okay with, uh, with opinions about things. Either God exists or he doesn't. Either Jesus walked this earth or he didn't. Either they crucified our Lord or they didn't. Either he rose from the dead or he didn't. It happened and it didn't happen does not work in the real world. Amen? Yes and no concerning the truth only works in the nonsensical imagination of a person who is trying to dodge the truth. They don't want to be judged and held in contempt by God for immorality and plain old everyday sin. But I tell you, the proof is in the crucifixion. The proof is in the burial. The proof is in the resurrection. So while uh, in no way did Peter promote another god, he did, however, endorse by, by wanting to put up uh, three different tents or tabernacles in some translations, uh, the fact that Jesus has his equal playing amongst others. So by saying that he would put up a tent even for Elijah, and even for Moses, that he demoted the worship status of Jesus down to their level. No, uh, uh, Peter was not cast down to hell for that. Neither was he kicked out of Jesus' discipleship program because he said what he said. But he did need correcting because heresy can never be ignored, even when there's a simple misunderstanding. The great clarification. The great clarification. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw uh, anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Bottom line, brothers and sisters, when all the smoke clears, Jesus stands alone. When all the smoke clears, Jesus stands alone. Look at verse 8, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but who? But Jesus. So a cloud envelops them, and God, he speaks. And again, we see this very often in Scripture as well, that uh, when one goes up on the mountain, that oftentimes that God, he appears, and his voice is heard oftentimes within a cloud. So God the Father within this cloud and his voice, he singles Jesus Christ out of all the others as he acknowledges him. Jesus Christ, God says that Jesus is transcendent. Jesus is transcendent. In other words, that he is high and above all others, including Elijah and Moses. 
Uh, some scholars say that uh, they believe what Moses and uh, Elijah represent, they represent the law and they represent the prophets. They represent the fact that the law and the prophets uh, would speak about Jesus Christ and that he came to fulfill them both. But Jesus Christ is transcendent. Again, this means to be far above anything that we could imagine or even think. And this is what it means to be God. If you're going to be God, you must be high and lifted up above all other things. Now this is the second time in the Gospels that we hear God the Father speak in recognizing Jesus, His Son. Remember the first time was at Jesus' baptism. And as with the first time, this instance singles Jesus out from among all others. Surely, John the Baptist, he had baptized many people, had he not? He had baptized scores of people, but the voice of God, it only came to recognize Jesus Christ. So here in Mark chapter 9, as they're up on the mountain, and then there was a choice between Jesus, a choice between Jesus and Elijah and also Moses, that God selects Jesus Christ. He singles him out as being his beloved son, and then he just didn't single him out. He says, do what? He says, this is my beloved son, and then the next command was to do what? Oh, let's try it again. Let's try it again. See, God does not just simply single Jesus Christ out. He also gives a command within that voice. He says, this is my beloved son. And then the command he says concerning Jesus is to do what? Listen to him. Have you heard the voice of Jesus Christ? Or are you still playing games? So one of the things we also notice in our passage for today is that we never hear, ever hear Jesus speak. Did you see that? Never once here in Mark did we hear Jesus speak. Of course, in verse 9 we can say, of course, he was speaking. His words are simply just not there. But the idea here in verses 2 through 8, and including 9, we know that he spoke in 9, but we don't see his words in 9. So let's go ahead and let's, we'll compact it to 2 through 8. And the fact remains is that Jesus, he never speaks. Why? Because this is one time that heaven bears witness about Jesus Christ. This is one time in which heaven bears witness about Jesus Christ. You know what, you, you know what I mean. Uh, that sometimes you can hear people talk about themselves all the time. And you don't think they're, uh, they're anything. But yeah, I'm this, and I'm that, and I'm this, and I'm that. You say, okay, let's hear what someone else has to say about you. You see, when someone else says something good about you, then all of a sudden there's more cretins uh, to what you've been saying all along. Sometimes the bottom line, brothers and sisters, is that we make Jesus so human that we forget that he's God. Sometimes we make Jesus so human that we forget that he's God. There's one song, uh, uh, there's one song that it took me years and years to finally like, and I have to be very honest with you, it was, it was a song called I Am a Friend of God. You remember that song, I Am a Friend of God. I am a, I'm like... Man, what do they mean by friend? I knew what the scripture said. But what do they mean that I am a friend of God? I mean, he is my God. God, Jesus, he's out there and I'm here. We know that in uh, John 15 and 15, that we like to focus on the fact that we are friends with Jesus. And this is totally biblical. 
that Jesus calls us friends. We also know that according to Matthew 28 and 10, that he also calls us brothers as well because we are his disciples. But more so than anything else, more so than anything else, we need to relate to Jesus as God. While Jesus is our friend, while Jesus is our brother, we must never ever forget that Jesus is our God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we read this earlier. God says this concerning himself and concerning us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. In other words, God said, get, get, get real. Get it straight. Who, who do you think you are? You, you think because you've been studying the word for all the time that you've been studying uh, that you're still like me and you know everything there is to know about me? He says, wrong. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. Declares who? Declares Yahweh. Verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, uh, how do you measure the distance between the earth and the heavens? And remember, during this ancient time, they oftentimes uh, indicated the heavens as being all the way up to seven different degrees. You got your lower heaven, you have your higher heaven, right? You have heaven one, heaven two, heaven three, heaven four, heaven five, heaven six, and heaven seven. He says, as far as the earth is from heaven seven, Right? What does he say here? He says, so are my ways, what? Higher than yours. He says, look, don't get it, don't get it mixed up. Don't get it twisted. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. When you're trying to figure me out, just figure me out and with the revealed word I've already given you and live your life in obedience towards me. Jesus is our God. Jesus is far out there. He is our friend as well. Right. Uh, we also must not be under the impression and the understanding that we do not have this intimacy of relationship with God because that's also true. But the purpose of this passage for us today is to understand the transcendence of Jesus Christ. The fact that he is God, the, the fact that he is divine, the fact that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. So it is true that you have this relationship, but uh, the passage is telling us today, the Holy Spirit is telling us today, never ever forget that Jesus Christ is higher than you are. And this is the only way that he was able to make amends for your sins. Amen?